John 19, verse 17. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus, we thank you so much for the sacrifice that you made. And as we read the scriptures, we are reminded of how great your love is, how compassionate you are. And Lord, we're reminded of the purpose for why you came to this earth. We're reminded of how desperately we need you. So today, would you draw near and draw us near to you? Do a work in our hearts and our lives, Lord, and make us more like you. We thank you for your word. Would you speak to us clearly through your word today? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Great to be together today, seeking the Lord and His Word, and just always exciting to come upon the Christmas season and have all the opportunities to come together and celebrate as a church family. <clears throat> and today, uh, we continue our study through the Gospel of John, and uh, we are, we're, we're sticking with our study in the Gospel of John and having a Good Friday message on the Sunday before Christmas. Uh, But reminded in the midst of that, that it is always about Jesus. It's always about the cross. It's always about his death and resurrection. It is the centerpiece for all that we believe. 
And sometimes we stop at Christmas time, we just stop right on his birth. And we celebrate that and we're grateful for that and we sing a couple songs and we think that, that that's all well and good. Uh, but we, we want to remember that it is about salvation. It is the, the message of the gospel in its entirety is that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead to give us the gift of salvation. Amen? But here we are in John 19. Uh, continuing our study, looking at the crucifixion of Jesus today, uh, finished up last time with Pilate ultimately relenting to the Jews and giving Jesus over to be crucified uh, in verse 16. We finished with that and then picking up here in verse 17 with, of course, the crucifixion. And he, verse 17, being uh, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. So first of all, the fact that Jesus bore his cross, we know according to Mark's gospel that he got help along the way. He was bearing his cross, but then another man, Simon of Cyrene, was brought on to carry the cross. Uh, it's an in interesting thing that criminals would carry their cross as a symbol or a mark of guilt on, uh, on, for their crimes that they have committed. And so it's an interesting note that Jesus, he bore the cross, but yet he was relieved of the cross along the way, even in that symbolizing and representing that he was completely innocent. Um, but nonetheless, Jesus, it's not about the physical, it's about the spiritual, right? So even as Jesus maybe was relieved from carrying the actual uh, cross beam of the cross as a criminal would, he still was going to a criminal's death and he was carrying maybe not the physical weight at that moment, but the weight of the sin of the world in its entirety. Because it's more spiritual than it is physical. If we've learned nothing else from the Gospel of John, we have learned so much that... Everything is spiritual. And everything that Jesus did, everything Jesus came to do is about the spiritual and not the physical. And so, yes, perhaps he wasn't carrying the entire way, the burden and the weight of the physical cross, but he was carrying spiritually. And it was heavier than the physical weight of the cross. He was carrying the weight of sin. He was carrying the weight of death. And he was carrying the weight of the sin of the entire world. Even though he was an innocent man, he still was going to a criminal's death. And this, of course, is after Jesus had already endured such great suffering. He's going through this lowest, the lowest death that there was. The Roman crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of criminals, the worst of the worst. Those who posed a threat to society, and to the Roman government. Now, we've already established that Jesus doesn't check those boxes. In fact, the man that they wanted released, Barabbas, checked those boxes. And even the two criminals now that we're going to look into here, the two criminals that were on either side of Jesus, likely, not just likely, but absolutely checked those boxes. In fact, they may have been accomplices of Barabbas that hung on either side of Jesus. 
without question, Jesus was going to a criminal's cross, taking the place of the criminal Barabbas specifically. Crucifixion was such a low death that the Romans wouldn't even talk of it. They wouldn't even speak of it, and the Romans themselves would not experience it. It was for others who, who posed a threat to their society and government. And it was at a place called Golgotha, the place of a skull. Uh, no one is exactly certain where this is. There is arguments over where it is. And we, when we've gone on our trips to Israel, we have visited um, two different places that one tour guide on one trip would say, no, it's absolutely this place. And another tour guide on another trip would say, no, it's absolutely this place. And, and there's been times that you're like, oh, no, this is right. And then there's other times, well, maybe this is right. Or maybe you just go back and forth. And there's, there's many arguments over which it is. And some would say it's this place that is called Gordon's Calvary now. Um, and when you, you might have even seen the pictures and you, of the looks like a skull in the rock. Um, we cannot be certain that 2,000 years ago it looked like a skull in the rock. Even from the first time I went to Israel to the last time I went to Israel, it doesn't look the same. There's a lot of erosion over time. And so 2,000 years is a long time to be certain that it was a skull in the rock without question, right? So uh, th there's different reasons why they believe in different places. We know it was outside the city, according to Scripture, and I think it's important that we notice that there's an importance of the place, and the importance of the place is that Jesus was crucified. It's not about the place, it's about Jesus and bringing the focus onto Jesus himself. If we knew absolutely the place, the location, exactly that the cross stood right here, then people would be bowing down and worshiping the place. And we see even that take place when we go on the trips to Israel. We see in both places, they're like, well, we're not certain. So people will bow down and kiss this place. And people will bow down and kiss this place. And they're worshiping a place rather than worshiping Jesus. And, and of course, the object of our worship should be Jesus and not the place in which he was crucified. So it's not about the place. It's about Jesus himself. And now the next verse is going to give us a good picture that the, the importance of the place is, is that it is where he was crucified. Verse 18 says where they crucified him and two others with him on either side and Jesus in the center. So it's where they crucified him. But let's draw our attention to this, that Jesus was in the center. Jesus was in the center on the cross between these two criminals. Now, there's, it's not about the place, like we said. It's about Jesus. And not only is there a symbol here that Jesus was at the center of this crucifixion of three men taking place, but it's Jesus, and it's the cross at the center of all our faith. It's Jesus at the center of all of history. I just had a conversation with my kids last night, or I overheard a conversation uh, that they were having with my wife and my one son asking about how many years ago was it that Jesus was born as we're celebrating Christmas. My wife said, well, it's 2,021 years because the whole calendar is based off of Jesus, right? And there's, there's a few years that there's argument over in there, four to six years that, well, maybe it was in, 
but the whole calendar. We have B.C., which is before Christ. <laughs> and then we have A.D., which no matter what they tell you, that's what we have, and they're not going to be able to change it. It's in the year of our Lord. Anno Domini, that's what it stands for, in the year of our Lord. The whole entire world is focused on Christ, and many will not even admit it. All of history is about Christ. It's centered on Christ. All of the Bible is centered on Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to Christ. The New Testament is about Christ. Now we, we go forward, and here we are today. We look back at Jesus. It's all about Christ. Everything that we do is to be centered on Christ. Everything that we believe and all the opinions that we form and the decisions that we make need to be centered on Christ. There is nothing else. There's no other valid opinions if it's not centered on Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of our faith, of history, of the Bible. Jesus is the center of hope and Jesus is the center of life. People would claim to have joy or they claim to have hope, but they don't have Christ. That doesn't make sense. It's not real hope. It's not real joy. It doesn't exist apart from Christ. Jesus, even here, in this, as we read, in his crucifixion, he's at the center between the two criminals, dying a criminal's death and hanging on the cross as the centerpiece of all of faith. As I said before, uh, likely these criminals were accomplices of Barabbas, representing again that more clearly Jesus hung on a criminal's cross, even though he himself was completely innocent. We know that it was outside the city that's really the, the importance of the place is that we know it's outside the city. It was a common place, the fact that it was outside the city. It was near a gate of the city, near the gate, the Damascus gate. And there was, as, as, at this time, especially during Passover, many people come to visit during the feasts, right? We've seen that throughout John's gospel as we've studied. Many visitors would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts and Passover being one of them. And so it's during the time of Passover, many people would be coming and going and passing by, entering into the city and seeing right outside the city these men hanging on a cross. It was a public place. Jesus was put on display for all to see. The center of this crucifixion taking place and the center of all of what we believe. Verse 19, we continue here. <clears throat> now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. A label is now put on Jesus, a title. And this was a common practice for a criminal to be uh, wear a placard, so to speak, of, uh, and announcing their crimes. 
And this is all Pilate had to say. This is all he had. And it was a, it was a dig at the Jews. He went through the whole trial. We know, we, we studied it the last couple weeks, and we've seen how he's like, I find no fault in this man. He, he found Jesus to be completely innocent. So what does he do? He puts it back on the Jews. Remember, he washed his hands. He said, I washed my hands of this man's blood. And so now he's putting it on the Jews. Look, I've got no fault. There is no crime to put on this man except Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, that's his title. That's the label that's put on Jesus. And what an amazing label it is. Jesus of Nazareth, as we've said before, would, would be a derogatory title or a derogatory name. Because Nazareth was the slum. It was such a lowly place. They would say nothing good or what good can possibly come from Nazareth. And so Jesus being given the title of Jesus of Nazareth, which he embraced, was a representation of his humility. But then it says, the king of the Jews, at the same time, is a great representation of honor to Jesus as the humble king. Pilate is making a, an amazing proclamation of truth, and he doesn't even realize it. God just does this. He uses wicked men to proclaim truth, and he's done it with Pilate before, and here he does it again to give the label of humility and honor to Jesus at the same time. And the Jews wouldn't accept it. They wouldn't receive Jesus as their king, would they? They have issue with this. And they protest even and say, no, no, not that he's the king of the Jews. We don't accept that. We haven't given him that label, but that he said he was or that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. But he's not our king. He just claimed to be our king. And Pilate's like, I don't care what you guys say anymore. Finally, Pilate worked up the courage within himself to stand up to the Jews to some extent. What I've written, I've written. That's it. I'm done with this. Because everything that has happened so far has been dictated to Pilate by the Jews. They're the ones who, is, who have called for the crucifixion of Christ. They're the ones who have put all this pressure on Pilate. And he did not have the conviction within himself to stand for what is right. So now, at least at this point, he's saying what is written is written. And he knows that he's sticking it to the Jews right here. And he's happy about it. As he's saying, you could even imagine, he's like, enough already. What is written is written. Jesus, in all humility and all honor, is hanging on the cross. The humble king. And the fact that it's written in these three languages of Hebrew, Greek, and Latin is significant because, as we said, many people are coming to celebrate Passover. Many people from all over would come, and so now it's in all the three major languages for people to see and to read and to understand this proclamation of truth. The humble king hangs on a cross. Jesus in all humility and in all honor at the same time. It's only Christ who could, who could have all honor and humility combined in perfection in the cross. 
Hebrew is the language of religion. Greek is the language of philosophy. And Latin is the language of the law. This is a proclamation to all people proclaiming that Jesus, through his crucifixion, fulfilled all religion, all philosophy, and all the law. Again, without even realizing, Pilate made that claim in what he wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Representing, of course, that the cross is enough. The cross is sufficient. And you might remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how what had happened so far was not sufficient for salvation. It was not enough. Jesus was arrested. Jesus was tried, unlawfully, unfairly tried, beaten, bruised, bloodied with the crown of thorns thrust into his head. And yet that wasn't enough. But here we're seeing that the cross, the cross is enough. The fulfillment is happening. The king, the humble king hangs on a cross and it's written in these languages for all to see the fulfillment that is taking place of the law, of religion, and of all philosophy, all ideology, all wisdom of man is being fulfilled through the humble king hanging on a cross. Verse 23, we continue. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. The soldiers didn't do these things on their own accord. They didn't do these things because they thought it was a good idea. They did these things because the scripture said they were going to do these things. Just like Pilate did what he did because the scripture said it was going to happen this way. Just like everything that has happened so far is according to prophecy, according to scripture. And nobody has the authority over any of the death and crucifixion and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Nobody has the authority. Pilate claimed authority. The, Jew, the Jewish uh, religious leaders tried to claim authority, but Jesus continued to just operate in all humility and authority at the same time. And so what's happening here, the soldiers are doing their job. They're doing what they were supposed to be doing. This was their job to, to fulfill the crucifixion. The Jews couldn't do it, but... Pilate gave Jesus up to be crucified. It was the soldier's responsibility now to follow through with that. And, and most commonly, there would be four soldiers at each of the three crosses. And it was a common practice for them to divide the clothing of the one being crucified among themselves. They would take the equal parts. Hey, there's a nice piece. You can have that one, and you could have that one, and you could have that one. But this one, but the tunic, the inner garment is one piece with no seam. Something that was often worn by the lower, lesser, uh, lower class people of Galilee. But more importantly, this is a type of garment that was worn by a high priest. 
this type of garment without a seam would be worn by the high priest, reminding us that Jesus is the great high priest. Now remember this, that all of this is happening as the scriptures are spoken, so that scripture might be fulfilled, not so that the soldiers can cast lots and somebody wins the prize of this garment, but so that scripture would be fulfilled. Psalm 22, you guys can turn with me there. I'm going to read through a good portion of the psalm. In Psalm chapter 22, we get to see what this, where this is coming from, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So let's look at it. In Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, this is written between 700 and 1,000 years before the crucifixion. Before this is taking place, it's many hundred years before. It says this, verse 1, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words that we know Jesus says from the cross. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season... And I am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. And those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced me, pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So that the scripture might be fulfilled. So many hundreds of years earlier, we see this all being written and played out. Bringing an understanding. This foreshadowing of what we're seeing take place here according to the scripture. We're about to see more of it. We've seen John write this before. It's all happening according to scripture. It's all happening that prophecy may be fulfilled. John says that many times in his gospel and now here again. 
This is all happening not because the soldiers have any power or authority over the, the man hanging on the cross like a criminal, but so that they would be a part of God's perfect plan and fulfilling what the scripture has said they are going to do in casting lots for his garments. We continue on in John 19. Verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then Jesus said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the, that disciple took her into his own home. There were a few here that stood by the cross, indicating to us that they were near to Jesus because they were followers of Jesus, close followers of Jesus. But it must have been so unbelievably painful for Mary to watch. In Luke chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 2, this is a blessing. So we get a little bit of Christmas in our message today. In Luke chapter 2 is the blessing of Simeon over Jesus, over Mary and Joseph after he was born. And it says this in Luke 20, uh, 2 verse 29 to 35. Lord, now are, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So there's our little Christmas influence in today's message on the cross. A blessing spoken over Jesus, over Mary and Joseph, and this word that Mary made is experiencing right here in this moment as she stood near the cross is that a sword would pierce her own soul also. She is experiencing the piercing as she's watching her son hang on a cross. But knowing at the same time that this is the plan for salvation. And she herself is submitted to that work. There were these, these faithful few along with her, these women who were there in support for her in love for Jesus. They too were followers of Jesus. But what we notice here is that Jesus saw his mother and he saw John. They were near enough to be seen by Jesus and near enough for Jesus to speak to them. To speak to them, and this wasn't, this wasn't a loud shouting. This was speaking. We'll get to the shouting later. 
He's speaking to them. He says, woman, behold your son. And then to John, the one whom Jesus loved, as John is so faithful to constantly point out to us, in all humility, John, the one whom Jesus loved, behold your mother. And John, you know, simply John was available. John was there. There were not many there. There weren't other, the other disciples weren't there. John was there. He was available. And through that availability, man, he experienced great blessing. Jesus spoke to him as he hung on a cross and said to him, behold, your mother, his own mother. He said, behold. Now, recognize this. Now, Jesus said, woman, behold your son. It's not, this wasn't a disrespectful woman. Hey, ma. He's not hanging there. Hey, ma. Now, out of that, Jesus is protecting his mother. If he called out to her as his mother, this, there's now a direct association with Jesus who's hanging on a cross as a criminal. I don't think Jesus wants to associate his mother with him right now. So there's a protection He's looking out for her in that sense, but he's looking out for her to, to, to then pass her on the responsibility and specifically the spiritual responsibility being passed on to John. Because Mary had other children. She had other family members. But Jesus looks at John and says, behold, your mother. Because he was there. Jesus saw his mother's agony and he forsook his own agony. I don't know about you guys, but if I stub my toe, I'm not looking out for you. I'm not looking out for somebody else thinking after I stub my toe, oh, are you okay? How's life going for you? You know what? I'm going to make sure to take care of all of your needs right now. No, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm doing a project at home of some sort, construction work, and I'm, I, something happens, I bang your you know, finger with the hammer, what do you want to do in that moment? Do you want to go find your loved ones and say to them, I love you. I'm going to show you compassion right now, and I want to make sure that all of your needs are met. No. I want to throw the hammer across the room. And cause other problems probably along the way. And if any of my kids or my wife come to me, are you okay? Leave me alone. I'm fine. I just need a moment. Right? I mean, that's the flesh that just comes out. When we're in pain, no matter how simple or how excruciating the pain may be, when we're going through suffering of any sort, for the most part, we want to be left alone. And we are in no way concerned with the needs of anyone else but Jesus. Imagine now all that he had been through before hanging on the cross. And now he's hanging on a cross. Nails have pierced him. He's going through the most excruciating and painful and intentionally drawn out death of that day. It was intended, a crucifixion, a Roman crucifixion was intended to be drawn out. They averaged from 52 hours to 13 days. That's how long people would hang on a cross. 
It was intended to be a long, drawn-out, excruciating process. And Jesus, after being beaten, scourged, crown of thorns. He hasn't slept for a long time at this point, carrying the burden of the cross for some time, carrying the burden of the weight of sin. Because as difficult as the physical pain is, the spiritual suffering is greater. And in all the suffering that he had been through, he sees his mother's pain. He sees her agony. He sees her need. And he has compassion. And he lays down his own suffering. Guys, Jesus suffered for all. And in that moment, he, he sees our suffering. He sees our pain. Even though it doesn't compare, he still sees our pain. And he shows compassion. And he did that to his mother. He saw her. And he said, behold your son. John's the guy. John was likely 17, 18 years old. Not your first choice to be like, hey, take care of my mom. But what's the influence here? And what, what, what Jesus is saying to John, behold your mother, take her in to be part of your family. But who's John's family? It's the disciples. It's the, those who, are, who have intimately been following Jesus. They have left everything behind to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, behold your mother, John. Take her in because she needs to be a part of the spiritual work that's going to take place. Jesus is seeing the great need for the spiritual over the physical. And he's giving that emphasis. He emphasizes the relationship that was connected and centered on Jesus Christ. Mary and John would have no relationship apart from Christ. Just like many of us would have no relationship with each other apart from Christ. And that's why we need Christ to be the center. He is what brings us together. And that's what he prayed for in John 17. That all believers would be one there would be perfect unity through Christ. That's the only way. And so here we are. We're seeing that worked out here. We're seeing that demonstrated that John, this teenager, could take Mary as his mother to be part of the work of what was going to take place, a part of the body of Christ, because there's so much value in that. And the great work that was going to follow this is, is mind-blowing. We see the church grow, right? We see Mary being a close follower of Jesus up until this point and even after this, awaiting to see the resurrected Christ in the upper room. Mary was there because John followed the word of Jesus. Behold your mother. And John simply was available, and Jesus works when we're available. We experience great blessing when we're available, when we show up. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, there we go again, he said, I thirst. 
It's Psalm 61 that tells us that also they, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And he said, I thirst. And these are the scriptures are being fulfilled as they are supposed to be. And Jesus, who knows all things, and we've seen that statement before as well in the Gospel of John. But now he's, not, he's knowing that all things are accomplished. All things are completed. It's a fulfillment of his mission, of his life, and his ministry right here and now. And he says, I thirst. This desire, as he says, I thirst, it is to fulfill scripture and its preparation for one final statement. Jesus wasn't going to quench his thirst. His thirst wasn't even that of a, a physical need. There was no quenching. At this point, Jesus is hanging on a cross. Quenching his thirst is not the concern. Preparing for this final statement is the concern. And it's a great reminder of John chapter 7 that we were able to study earlier on, right? In John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, it says this. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And if you remember when we studied that, what does it mean to, for Jesus to be glorified? Is his crucifixion. So now we're seeing that Jesus is being glorified. The centerpiece of all faith on the cross, being glorified. And that would usher in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is bringing fulfillment to those thirsty souls. Anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. And now Jesus himself is being poured out as the drink offering. And the practice of that day, what Jesus is watching take place in John 7, the practice was this coming to the pool and taking these cups, filling up, and then pouring them out on the altar. And so here's Jesus bringing fulfillment to that ritual, to that religious practice of pouring out. Now Jesus himself is being poured out, and Jesus himself says, I thirst. At the same time, Jesus is ushering in the Holy Spirit through his crucifixion. Through this glorification, as John chapter 7 talks about. But that was to prepare, right? So then verse 29 says, Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. This was not to quench his thirst, like I said before, but to prepare for Jesus to be able to speak. And to speak with a loud voice. 
Jesus didn't say he thirsted that he could be quenched, but so that he could be poured out and to make a great proclamation. And Matthew says it, that he cried out with a loud voice and said these final words, verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished with a loud voice. He needed to get that sip of something to clear his throat perhaps and to be prepared to make this great proclamation. It is finished. Now in the Greek, this is a, the translation is a, is a proclamation of victory. This is something that would be said by a winner in a race or in a competition. They would be running a race and say, it is finished, to telestai. This is the word, making the proclamation as a winner. And you could imagine as there's many people walking by and, and many people who are watching this display of crucifixion, seeing and hearing Jesus say, it is finished? As a winner? He doesn't look like a winner to me. But he is, right? The idea is not that he's done. That is that he's spent. That life is over. But that the job is done. And he had won. Claiming great victory in that statement. Simple statement. It's also a term that would be used by merchants. To say it is finished is to say the debt is paid in full. Imagine you have a car payment and after you pay off the car, you get that note in the mail, you get the title sent to you and then it says a letter, it is finished, right? Wouldn't that be cool? We need like a Christian bank or something to do that. Anybody got an idea? You know, just send that out if you're involved. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. Jesus, when Jesus gave himself up, he met the righteous demands of a holy law. The debt is paid in full. He paid our debt in full. We can't meet the righteous demands. Jesus met the righteous demands. In the Old Testament, sacrifices could only cover sin, not take the sins away. But now here we see John chapter 1 verse 29 fulfilled as John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he is, the Lamb of God on display, taking away the sins of the world and making this proclamation, it is finished. There's a story of a man who approached an evangelist on the street and said, what must I do to be saved? The evangelist said, it's too late. The man said, what? Is there truly nothing that I can do? And the evangelist said, it's already been done. All is, that is left is for you to believe. It's already been done. Jesus said it. And as we have learned through the gospel of John, if Jesus says it, we can take it as an absolute. It is finished. 
Not it might be finished. All things might be fulfilled. You might be good, good to go. Imagine that if you're paid off your car and the bank sends you a letter and says, yeah, you might be good. And the, but there's no title, right? You just say, hey, you'll be all right. Sure, just give it a try. It won't be, a, it's not a stolen car, right? You might be okay. No, it is finished. So let us live life as though it's finished. As though there is victory over sin. As though there is victory over death. Not as though there might be, but there is. You see, in this statement, Jesus changed the world. It is finished. Meaning it was all finished. It was all accomplished. All of salvation is fulfilled. Promises and prophecies were finished. Sacrifices and ceremonies of the priesthood were finished. His perfect obedience, fulfilling the perfect will and plan of God, is finished. The satisfaction of God's justice, fulfilling that righteous law, was finished. The power of Satan, the power of sin, and the power of death is finished. And then, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This translation here for him bowing his head is not in despair, but it is translated to be even as though he bowed his head to rest. In rest and in peace. Jesus was in perfect peace because the work had been perfectly finished. And remember we said it before, we studied all the way back to John chapter 10. Nobody took his life from him. Nobody was going to take his life. He gave up his spirit. He surrendered his life. St. Augustine said, if he gave up his life because he willed it, he, when he willed it, and as he willed it. And we finish with this, a quote by Spurgeon if he has finished the work for me, then I must get to work for him. Not to save myself, but because I'm saved. If he's finished it, then let's get to work. He's finished the work of salvation. Let's tell the world. Not for our salvation, but because of our salvation, because of his great grace, because we believe that the work is finished, let us tell the world that it is finished. There is victory. Jesus proclaimed it as the winner. Therefore, it's true. Let's pray.